Welcome to In the Word Devotions by Wellspring Christian Ministries. We're glad you joined us as we hear from God through His Word. Here's our CEO, Julia Bruce, with today's devotion. Hey everybody and welcome back to In the Word Devotions from Wellspring Christian Ministries. Have you ever had a moment when you wished there was someone praying for you? Maybe you even sent a prayer to God that he would lay your name on someone's heart and mind so that they would pray for you right then in that moment. Or maybe you experienced a time when there was a person that came across your mind in such a way that you felt compelled to pray for them. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, and this is one of nine recorded prayers that we find in the Bible that Jesus prays. As each second of time brings Jesus closer to the cross, you were on his mind, and he stopped to pray for you. And today, Jesus is still praying for you. But here in John 17, we find that Jesus is on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's about to be betrayed and arrested. But before Jesus crossed the brook Kidron, he feels compelled to just stop right where he is and pray. Out of the nine recorded prayers of Jesus in the Bible, eight of them contain no more than 150 words when you combine all eight of those prayers. But this prayer in John 17 consists of almost 400 words. Who did Jesus pray for and what was so important that it stopped him on the way to the garden to pray right then? I mean, Jesus was going to the garden to pray anyway, so why not just wait until he got there? Well, Jesus had something on his mind that just couldn't wait until he got to the garden. And so he stops right where he is and he prays. So who did Jesus pray for? We are going to find that Jesus prayed for the disciples and for us. Jesus knew what he was about to face in the coming hours. The mock trial, the ridicule, the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns in the cross. But the recorded prayer here that consists of more words than the other eight prayers combined isn't about himself and what he's about to face. He does start off the prayer asking his father to give his son the glory that he deserves, and he also tells the father that he's completed all the tasks that God gave to him, and now the time has come for him to be the sacrifice for our sins. But from verse 6 through the end of the chapter, Jesus prays for those whom you gave me. That's his disciples and you if you've asked him to be your savior. Jesus begins praying for his disciples. He knew the days ahead for them were going to be difficult. They were going to be confused. They would be grieving over his death. And he knew that eventually most of them would end up being martyred for their belief in him. These were the 11 men tasked to spread the gospel message throughout the world. And so Jesus prays for them. 
But then in verse 20, Jesus prays for every single person down through time who believes in him and confesses him as their Savior. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So let's look at what Jesus felt was so important to stop on his way to the cross to pray for you and me. The first thing we find in verses 11 and 12 is that Jesus prays for our protection. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So when Jesus prayed, keep them in your name, he was saying, keep your eye on them, guard them, protect them. Jesus had protected them while he was there, but his time was nearing to return to heaven, and he was no longer going to be physically present with the disciples. So he entrusted them to his father's protection. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus prays for our sanctification. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. To sanctify a person is to make him holy. And in verse 19, Jesus says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So then what is the truth that we are sanctified by? The truth refers to Jesus and who he is, the only Son of God, the Redeemer, the sacrificial Lamb, the Savior of the world. It is the truth of Jesus that sets us free from our sins. It is the truth of Jesus that makes us set apart for God's use. And it is through the truth of Jesus that we are made holy. Jesus also prays for our mission. In verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus didn't endure the agony and torture of the cross just to give us a get out of hell pass. We are not supposed to just sit back and enjoy God's blessings in a carefree world. Even once we are in heaven, we don't just sit around. God has a mission for each one of us and he has gifted us with exactly what we need to be able to carry out that mission. We commonly call that mission the Great Commission. We are to go and tell everyone about Jesus and what he did for us and about his love for us. How we do that might look different from one person to another, but that's the mission that God gave to each and every believer. Your God-given mission is vital to the health of your church. 
but how you specifically play your role in the mission is going to look different from anyone else. God uniquely and wonderfully made you, and you are uniquely and wonderfully gifted to carry out the mission in the way that God intended for you to carry it out. You are not meant to warm a seat at church. You are made to serve within the body of Christ. And if you are not serving, you should be. If you're not serving, your church body is limping along. You are specifically placed within your church because the gifts and talents you have are exactly what's needed for your church to carry out the mission God has for it. If your church is to be healthy, thriving, and growing, then every Christian must be actively utilizing the gifts that they were given. Your mission may not be a missionary, pastor, or small group leader. It might look more like a parking lot attendant or the person that refills the pockets on the seat backs for the next service. If you don't know where to serve, start by asking yourself what you are good at and what do you enjoy doing. Often these will give you clues into how God wants to use you within your church. Maybe you're good at fishing and you have a burden for teen boys being raised by single moms. Your mission might look like volunteering to mentor those teen boys and take them out fishing for a day and just showing them how to be men. Maybe you're a senior adult retired school teacher and you loved teaching. And as you go to choir practice, you hear a young mom talking about her preteen daughter struggling in history class. And history was what you taught when you were teaching. And you taught her grade level. Your mission may be to volunteer to tutor that preteen girl as you love her like Christ and eventually lead her to Christ as you model Christ to her each time you are with her. You see, we are often already gifted with exactly what we need for the mission God has for us. And your mission has been covered in the prayer of Jesus. Jesus also prays for our unity. As we read news stories of disunity within our world, do you ever wonder as Jesus prayed, as he looked down through time to such moments as we have today and pray for the discord and the violence and the hatred that we see in our world today? Do you wonder if when Jesus instructed us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that he watches as some victim takes their last breath? Or did he see all the other people who would die throughout all of time because of prejudices, whether racial, gender, religious, economic, social, or any other kind of prejudice? Yes, Jesus prays for our unity. And he does so because Satan's goal is to stir up disunity everywhere he possibly can. He knew as long as Satan is in the world that Satan would stir up strife, envy, hatred, and anger. Satan loves nothing more than to get a body of believers to argue amongst themselves. 
You see, when we as followers of Christ can't get along with one another, then our testimony for Christ is destroyed. If you are a person who constantly disagrees and causes dissension in the church, then you are allowing Satan to use you to accomplish his mission. And if we are more concerned with the color of the carpets than the souls going to hell, then we need to examine our hearts and rediscover the mission of the church. And so Jesus prays for our unity. In verse 11, Jesus says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus prayed for our unity. And in verses 20 to 23, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The world is always watching us. The question is, does the world know by watching you that God sent Jesus and that Jesus loves them as God loved his son? There are no perfect churches, and there are no perfect churches because they are filled with broken people. The simple fact is we live in a broken world full of broken people, and we are all broken because of sin. Therefore, there are no perfect churches. Every church is filled up with people who are broken, people just like you and me. And Satan loves to stir up trouble within the body of believers, and he will do so at every opportunity he gets. But there's another reason there are no perfect churches. Each one of us has had different experiences in life, different traditions handed down, and different options and attitudes. Our life experiences shape and define how we interpret and view the world around us. And through our life experiences, we tend to make assumptions or unintentionally misunderstand someone else's motives or feelings. We have all experienced a time when someone hurt our feelings or disappointed us in some way. And all of these things can stir up disunity. There are no perfect churches because we see it as my church rather than Christ's church. Think for a moment about when you and a friend are talking about two churches you attend. Most likely, you refer to the church you attend as my church. As a member of the body believers that fellowship at that location, we take an ownership of the church, and we can be quite stubborn and selfish when things don't go the way we want them. Churches have split over the color of the carpets, where the piano should be on the stage, whether to sing praise songs or old hymns. Wherever Satan can cause division, he will. 
But we must remember that the church doesn't belong to us. It's Christ's church. He bought and paid for it with his own blood. The church either loses its testimony or it will close its doors whenever we allow Satan to breed disunity and strife within the body of Christ. Jesus prays for us because his goal is that the world may believe that God sent him. Disunity is important to the cause of Satan. However, unity is important to the cause of Christ. And in verse 21 and 23, we find why unity in the body of believers is so important. Both of these verses tell us unity is important because then the world will believe that God sent Jesus. Jesus stressed the purpose for our harmony in verse 21. There he prayed, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. When we are unified, the world sees how much God loves them. They learn that Jesus died for them and paid the price and punishment for their sins. They learn that Jesus rose again and that he wants no one to perish, but that all will be saved. The world will believe that God sent Jesus, and that is the gospel message. When we live together in unity, loving each other as Christ has loved us, they will know that we are a disciple of Christ. If a lost person walked in your church this Sunday, and it's the only time ever that they hear about Jesus, what will he or she learn about Jesus by observing and attending your church? How many people might not make it to heaven because they came to your church and there was no unity? Yes, unity is important. And Jesus prays for us. Today, Jesus is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father and he continues to pray for us. He continues to pray for our unity. He continues to pray for our protection. He continues to pray for our sanctification. And he continues to pray for our mission as we carry it out in his name. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to visit us on the web at wellspringchristianministries.org. And if you'd like to schedule Julia to speak at an event at your church, call us today at 904-239-8937 or complete the event speaker request form under the events tab of our website. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast episode.